Welcome to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Paul Tordot. Summer's arrived, and that means it's time to go boating. As we prepare to enjoy Alaska's thousands of miles of rivers and coastline, it is worthwhile to review the equipment and safety precautions needed for a safe and enjoyable boating season. Stay tuned as our guests share their tips and a special segment on the Alaska Float Coat Song. Let's start with Joe McCullough and Andy Grenier with Alaska Office of Boating Safety. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I'd like to begin and tell you what most of you probably already know. The Great Land is a paradise, albeit a chilly paradise for sports enthusiasts. Insiders will tell you there's no better fishing state from halibut to salmon to steelhead. Alaska has it all. As for boating, that's world-class too, with opportunities ranging from classic whitewater to serene coastal lagoons. There are over 3 million lakes, 3,000 rivers, and more shoreline than all the lower 48 combined. The opportunities to enjoy Alaska's waterways are as broad as the Great Land itself, from from pleasure sailing in the inlets of the Southeast to subsistence whaling in the Arctic waters of the Northwest. Boating is diverse, but the message is the same. Always wear your life jacket, always carry emergency communication, and always be familiar with self-rescue techniques. However, Alaska also has the dubious distinction of owning one of the highest boating fatality rates in the nation. Five out of six of Alaska's boating fatalities are a result of a capsize or a fall overboard. Furthermore, most of the fatalities involve middle-aged men in a vessel less than 26 feet who aren't wearing a life jacket when they're dumped into water. Alaska's cold water and remote settings, when combined with being unprepared, are risk factors that significantly reduce the odds of surviving a boating accident in Alaska. Most Alaskans know significant amount about boating, but where knowledge is lacking is in understanding or being aware of the real risk involved with cold water. And Annie's gonna fill in on a lot of that. The other gap is that few Alaskans have attended a boating safety class, mirroring national data. Statistics show that most who die in a boating accident had not taken a boating safety course. Since the time the Alaska Office of Boating Safety was established, the office has worked with its partners with the intended purpose of improving boating behaviors, reducing boating deaths, injuries, and property damage, and enhancing the enjoyment of Alaska's waterways. Since then, Alaska has seen the fatality rate drop over 20%. The Office of Boating Safety has reached almost 202,000 children with its Kids Don't Float Schools program. And even though boating safety education is not yet required in Alaska, as it is in most of the lower 48, 
approximately 10,000 voters have taken a nationally certified voting safety course. In addition, the Office of Voting Safety has provided instructor training, specialized presentations, and embarked on a vigorous light jacket wear campaign. In 1998, when state efforts in voting safety began, 38 Alaskans died in recreational boating accidents. Since then, the number of fatalities has dropped steadily to a low of seven in 2014 and 2015. The program and staff have, always been, have also been the recipient of several state and national awards. Good times and great adventures await the well-prepared boater. To paraphrase a quote from Mark Twain, throw off the bow lines, cruise the open water, and catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, discover, but don't forget to boat with caution. Always wear your life jacket. Remember to file that float plan and save the drinking for dry land. I'd That's, also like to, okay. Oh, go ahead, Joe. Go ahead. Well, next I was gonna talk about a success story. Oh, great. And what happened was several years back, a father and four teenage girls set out on one of Alaska's lakes, one of its larger lakes. And the excursion soon became far more dangerous than anyone expected. The weather turned wicked and an 18 foot aluminum skiff swamped and sank. And everyone went into the frigid glacial fed lake with water temperatures in the low 40s. Everyone wore life jackets, but even that precaution wasn't enough to save them all. Three girls uh, below the age of 16 swam for what investigators estimate to be four and a half hours wow. in that 40 to lower degree water and swam close to three miles in nine to 10 foot seas. Wow. And it wasn't until after 18 hours that they went into the water that they were rescued. Uh, I hope nobody ever experiences what those three young ladies experienced that night, but they are a testament to the will to live, being prepared. They were prepared in the event that something like this happened. And more, most importantly, we believe is that they all were wearing life jackets and that's why they're here today. Thanks, Joe. Uh, that was Joe McCullough, the director of the Office of Board and Safety. So um, that's really impressive. They could, um, you know, survive that cold of water for that long. Um, is that common, or is that? I mean, my 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 always thinking, boy, you're going that cold of water. You don't have that long, but they seem to do pretty well. Well, Annie's going to touch on that, but that is one of the myths of cold water. Uh, we've had a thermophysiologist, Dr. Gordon Giesbrecht, commonly called Professor Popsicle, who's been known to stay, say that you'd be lucky to live long enough to die of hypothermia if you're wearing a life jacket. Uh, that a life jacket enables you to breathe, helps you stay buoyant, and so it's not 
that's extreme four and a half hours, but we've had several instances, multiple instances of people surviving up to an hour. And really you don't need that long because hopefully you're gonna get rescued or self-rescue. Most of our fatalities on the other hand are within the first couple minutes. Yeah. And they're not hypothermic. They drown because they don't do what these young ladies did that night or what Annie's going to tell you about. Thanks, Joe. Annie, why don't you uh, tell her, this is Annie Grenier, also with the Office of Bird and Safety. So, Annie, what can people do to prepare? Um, is it, you know, early season, we're recording this in uh, late April and it'll be aired in June. But uh, what can people do to, before they go out on the water? I think uh, first and foremost, like Joe's talking about, understanding the risks of boating on cold water. Um, hopefully by June, we're having some really nice sunny days um, and some warmer weather. Um, but it's important to remember that the water in Alaska is cold all year round and to understand what those risks are to us um, physically if we do enter that cold water. So like Joe was talking about, um, when you first enter the water um, with this this cold water immersion, the physiological effects, we experience something called the initial reaction or a cold shock response. Um, and what that looks like is gasping, hyperventilation, um, panic, a sudden change in heart rate, blood pressure. Um, it really affects us physically and mentally in that phase. And so it's important to remember um, is that we need these life jackets right away. So having them readily accessible um, doesn't necessarily do us much good. We're gonna need them as soon as we fall into the water. So um, like Joseph, this is one of our most dangerous stages um, where we see probably some of the most people lost um, is in this initial reaction, this initial response. What we wanna do is just remember that it doesn't last very long. It's terrifying to experience, but um, it typically only lasts about one to three minutes, depending on the person and um, some other risk factors. Um, and so the best thing to do in this phase, especially if you have on a life jacket, is just to trust that life jacket. Um, try to, to focus on calming down, uh, slowing your breathing down and just float. Research has actually showed us that if you try to self-rescue in this initial phase, um, you'll actually lose time on the back end of how long you'll be able to uh, survive in cold water just because of the amount of energy that you, extra energy you exert trying to override all of these things that are happening to you physically in these few minutes. So just float on your back, um, wait for this to pass, and then it's time to start doing things. Because the second thing that's going to start happening to us is called cold incapacitation. Um, so what's our body's going to do? I think a lot of people confuse the stage with hypothermia, but what our body's doing is actually trying to prevent hypothermia from happening. So our blood vessels constrict, so our body can keep more blood in our core, where we can keep it warmer longer, and less blood is going to go out to our extremities where it would cool faster. So in the long term, this is a good thing for our body if we have on a life jacket. If we don't have on a life jacket, we're gonna to start to experience some swim failure after about 10 minutes. And so um, again, a life jacket's really key to surviving in cold water. Um, but like Joe was saying, if you do have on a life jacket, um, research also shows us that it takes at least 30 minutes before your body temperature will even start to drop, even in really cold water. 
That's a great, that's great. And I'm going to just let everybody know this is um, Alaska Public Media Outdoor Explorer. And we're talking about um, uh, uh, boating safety. So and I have Annie Quinn here talking from the Office of Boating Safety. Go ahead, Annie. Yeah, so, um, you know, hypothermia, as long as we have on a, a life jacket, Joe mentioned earlier, hopefully you have a way to call for help. So um, we talked about sort of what our danger is boating. And now I want to talk about some of the stuff that you can carry on your boat um, or things that you can do to kind of help set yourself up for success um, should the unexpected happen. So I've mentioned life jackets a lot. Um, the law in Alaska is that children under the age of 13 are required to wear a life jacket in an open boat, on the deck of a boat, or when being towed um, for a water sports activity. Um, there has to be a U.S. Coast Guard approved life jacket on board for every person on the boat. And so that means it has to fit the intended wearer and it has to be in serviceable condition. So this is a good time of year to pull your life jackets out and inspect them and make sure that they are in serviceable condition. So look for things like broken buckles, zippers that aren't working, tears on the fabric, um, flotation material that might be getting um, worn or compromised. So if it's really rigid and stiff, um, or if it's been getting compressed over the years, it might be time to look at a new life jacket. Um, and there are lots of um, much more comfortable life jackets than I think what a lot of us think of, um, those big orange horse collar life jackets. Um, now there are a lot of life jackets on the market that are low profile, much more comfortable to wear. So find one um, that fits you is really important. Read that label. It'll tell you what size person it's designed for. Um, also check the fit once you put it on, snug down all those straps um, and make sure that it's not going to ride up on you in the water. Um, find one for the intended use. That'll help make sure that it's comfortable for you while you're out there, um, but also that it'll keep you safe during that activity. It's approved for that activity. Um, and then again, even though adults aren't required to wear them in Alaska, um, I would just encourage you to do that. It keeps you much safer and you set an example for all the others that are out on the boat. Also making sure that you have a communication signaling device that's gonna work in the area that you're boating in. Alaska is a very um, geographically diverse state and um, we do a lot of different types of boating. So make sure that you have something that's gonna work, whether it's a VHF radio, um, a satellite messaging device, a personal locator beacon, um, a cell phone, a satellite phone, whatever you're relying on, make sure that it's um, gonna work where, you, where you're at. Make sure that it's waterproof um, and keep it on your person. Um, like Joe said, most of our fatalities that we see are swamping, capsizing, ejection, fall overboard. These are sudden onset emergencies. They happen really fast. And so if you don't have these devices on your person, there's a good chance you could end up overboard without them and then you can't use them for help. So um, also make sure that everyone on the boat um, knows how to use those communication devices in case it's someone else on the boat who has to use them. Also make sure that you have all the required equipment. We have a really nice con uh, condensed and concise requirement summary, state requirement and summary card on our website, alaskaboatingsafety.org. Um, and if you go to the publications tab, we have a link to that requirement summary card and it'll tell you all of the things that you're required to have on your boat while you're operating in the state of Alaska. There's also a pre-departure checklist that you can find on the website there that'll help you uh, to walk through um, all of the things that you should be doing um, before 
you even leave the driveway um, included right up until uh, you're about to pull out of the dock or um, off that boat launch ramp. Um, and then, like Joe mentioned, um, filing a float plan. So there are ways, there are lots of websites that you can uh, do that online, including pledgetolivek.org, um, or you can write it down, type it out, leave it with a trusted friend. Um, and also when you're doing that, don't forget when you come back to let them know that you're okay, that you made it back. Um, but include things like where you're going, how long you're gonna be gone, um, who's on the boat with you, uh, when you want people to start looking for you, all of that stuff is really important. And check the weather and the tides before you head out. Again, pledge to live AK.org is a great resource for boaters. It's kind of a, a one-stop shop. Um, you can go on there. There are multiple links to check the weather. Um, I always recommend checking multiple sources for weather while you're out there. There are tide tables. Check the tides so they're specific to the area where you're boating. Um, and then also, if you're a power boater, um, I would encourage you to, to use an engine cutoff switch. So that's a lanyard that um, would turn off the engine should the operator um, be thrown from the, bo the boat or thrown from that uh, steering helm. And so um, it's actually, there's a new federal law that went into effect on April 1st of this year, 2021, um, that requires the operator of a boat that's less than 26 feet with an installed engine cutoff switch to actually wear that engine cutoff link. And so you can also use an electronic engine cutoff switch as well that would meet that requirement. Um, but that is applicable on all federally navigable waterways. So um, that's something that if you're a powerboat operator and you're operating on federally navigable waterways, um, look into that. If your boat meets that requirement, make sure that you're wearing that. But again, I would just encourage you as a powerboat operator, regardless of what kind of boat you have, to look into those devices because um, they're very important um, and could save a life. And then last, I would just encourage you, um, regardless of the type of boating that you do, um, to take a class. Like Joe said, um, it's, it's not mandatory in Alaska, um, but we do have um, a class that covers boat operation, legal requirements, navigation, trip planning and preparation, accident prevention, survival. Um, and we offer those free through the state. And so um, our website, alaskaboatingsafety.org, right on our homepage, we have a calendar that shows all of the classes that we have coming up that you can sign up for. We also list all of our classes, um, any class that we know of that's happening through any of our partners. So that could be the US Power Squadron, the US Coast Guard Auxiliary, all of those classes are up there. Um, and we can help direct you um, based on uh, the type of boating that you're doing to a class that would suit your needs. So whether you're a beginner boater, or you've been boating for a while, um, you know, legal requirements may change, laws may change. Um, there's always new equipment out there. Um, and so it's great to just sort of take a refresher and figure out um, the best tools that are out there to keep you safe while you're out on the water. Great, that was a, that was a lot of information there, so thanks a lot. And we'll uh, have those links on the Outdoor Explorer website. One question I had for you, Andy, is um, going back to life jackets, I, there's the auto inflate life jackets. What are your take on those? Um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people like them. 
they're great for certain situations. So there's not really um, one life jacket that's perfect for any situation. So uh, make sure it's a good fit for the type of boating that you're doing. Um, and inflatable life jackets, again, they're really popular because they're so low profile. And so if people are willing to wear inflatable life jackets, they aren't willing to wear um, inherently buoyant life jackets, then that's great. Um, that's a great option for them. Um, on the, the flip side, they are a little bit more maintenance. So, um, and there is an additional expense because you do have to replace some of those parts periodically to make sure that they're in good serviceable order. So um, like those cartridges should be replaced um, every two years. They should be inspected every year, replaced every two years, whether you inflate them or not. Um, there's different types of auto inflate life jackets. So um, depending on what type you have, there are different pieces that may need to be replaced even every year. And so there's a little bit extra work there. There's a little bit extra expense. But again, if you're willing to wear that life jacket um, and it'll keep you safe for the type of boating that you're doing, then that's a really great option. I had another question. Uh, you mentioned uh, for the ocean or the, the engine cutoff switch and on federally navigable waters, how would one find out what's a federally navigable water? Um, so I can give my best shot. Joe might jump in. Um, and so uh, any ocean water, um, any water that um, leads to the ocean that you could take a boat up um, or any um, water with a commercial enterprise. Joe, is there any corrections that need to be made there? Any additions? You nailed it. All right. That's exactly it. I know that's been controversial over the years. So, so it sounds like if I want to take my raft down the Kenai and float the canyon with my engine on it, and I'm going to then boat across or whatever, Skelak Lake, I might have to have that engine cut off if I have one on my engine attached to me. It would probably yeah, be a good idea one way or another, but. It would be a good idea one way or another, but yeah, if your boat is equipped with that engine cutoff device um, and it's less than 26 feet, then uh, um, oh, my okay. understanding is yes, you would, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, this is Outdoor Explorer in Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Paul Torda. We're talking about boating safety. Coming up, it's a, I think a very relevant topic. Everybody's coming out of the pandemic and very excited to get outside and on the water. Uh, next up, I have Ingrid Stevens, who's the Injury Prevention Program Manager at Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium, or NTHC, and Arlo uh, Davis, the Injury and Pre uh, Prevention Specialist with Manilak Association in Kotzebue. Uh, welcome, Ingrid and, and Arlo. Uh, tell us a bit about your programs. Thanks. Hey, Goyano, Paul, thank you. So, uh, happy to share. So here at ANTHC, boating safety is actually one of our top three priorities for our Alaska Native Tribal Health System. In the Injury Prevention Program, we work with our tribal health partners to review data and use data for action. We believe in strong partnerships and collaborations, such as partnering with OBS, Office of Boating Safety, and then also the Manilak Association. And this is to build resources and to make sure that our messaging is both culturally and linguistically valued. One of our strongest messages, which you'll hear from shortly, is about wearing your full coat or a life jacket. And this is prevention. That is one of our strongest stances is that we'll take is that wearing your life jacket is prevention. And so me as an auntie or an older sister, I'm an influencer. And so when I'm on the boat, 
fishing or even just around the water, I make sure that everyone on the boat is wearing their life jacket. So with that said, I'll hand it over to Arlo Razrak Davis from Maniluk Association. Thanks, uh, Paul, and thanks, Ingrid. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, always looking for opportunities to um, help bring some information out to the out to the folks, out to the people. Here at Manilik Association in Kotzebue, Alaska, uh, we're the healthcare provider for the entire region, uh, as well as one village outside of the borough. Uh, 12 communities all in all in an area that's a little bit larger than the state of Indiana. Uh, so it's nice. quite a lot of uh, water. There's a lot of wetlands up here, a lot of coastline. Um, and so being aware of, of uh, how to be safer out there is really important for everybody here. A couple of weeks ago, we recently had the opportunity to attend the water safety class that Annie uh, teaches and it was great. We roped in um, folks from quite a few different organizations here in Kotzebue, uh, a couple of us here from Manilik, um, some folks from the borough, Northwest Arctic Borough, um, the park ranger that works for the National Park Service. Um, I can't remember who all was there, but there was a lot of different organizations represented and we got excited because um, even though a bunch of us are from the region here, um, we didn't know a lot of the technical details that Annie just brought up here in today's talk, um, like the cold incapacitation isn't technically hypothermia, it's just your body losing its functions and how important it is to be wearing the life jacket or the flotation device before you get dunked in the drink. Because uh, once you go in the in the water, um, it becomes very, very difficult, if not impossible, to try to get on any sort of life vest or flotation device or um, float coat or, or Gumby survival suit or anything like that. So we were uh, really surprised and um, got excited and we're gonna, we've started discussions on um, holding a big event here in Kotzebue once the ice goes out. Everything's still frozen right now um, here in late April. And we'd like to reach out to a lot of the adults and then also a lot of the youth because um, we found out that uh, sometimes the youth in our communities are under the false impression that they can just take the life jacket with them in the boat. And then if the boat capsizes, uh, they'll put it on, but um, that's not a good idea for survival. So we wanna we want help teach that lesson to the youth uh, viscerally and, and in person and get that lesson anchored in their bodies uh, so that they'll be much more likely to wear their life jacket. Um, we're talking about bringing in the Coast Guard and some folks in some dry suits to supervise the event and make a big to-do of it. I don't know, get some hot dogs and hamburgers cooking on the side so when people come out of the cold water, they can warm up and get some grub, uh, maybe get some swag, some brochures, uh, make a big deal out of it. So we're really excited. Um, It'll be a, a huge 
cross-organizational event here, a lot of local cooperation, interagency cooperation. Um, so that's one thing I do here at Manilik um, with the injury prevention stuff going on here. I, we also sell uh, a lot of equipment and supplies at cost and we ship out to all the surrounding communities uh, for free. And then uh, I do a lot of work with injury data. Uh, we're trying to um, make this project where we can get near real-time injury data from the electronic health records and then uh, start looking at that data to come up with data-driven injury prevention solutions. So um, great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Arlo, Dantel's Arlo Davis. We're going to take a short break now. This is Paul Tordak. Uh, well, you're listening to the Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. And we'll be back right after the break with more about boat um, and safety in Alaska. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes Store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. Outdoor Explorer. We're talking about boat and safety in Alaska, and I have a fine group of people here involved in that topic to share with us how to avoid getting in trouble out there. I want to. Ingrid Stevens is with us. She's with the Alaska Natal Travel Health Consortium. And Ingrid, can you you mentioned something earlier that I'm interested in following up is like when should we wear a life jacket? You mentioned on or off the water. Can you or anybody give examples of maybe when we're not on the water when we should wear a life jacket or maybe have our kids wearing life jackets? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Paul, for that question. So just like you mentioned, especially younger children, especially if they're going to be near water or even near a swimming hole, it's important that you already be prepared. Um, even if you have small animals, for instance, um, I even put life jackets on my dogs when we go swimming at Lake Okuma. I know that sounds hilarious, but it's true. There's an assumption out there that you can be a strong swimmer or that you can swim. But that just simply is a myth is that you really should be wearing your life jacket near water, especially if you're going to have small children or other uh, vulnerable populations. That's great. And Arlo, um, you had mentioned and during the break, a, um, a uh, well, two things. Um, you mentioned earlier about an injury uh, database. And I know Ingrid's involved in this too. You all are. Maybe can you elaborate on a little bit like what that is what that's about and, and what it's telling you? Yeah, it's pretty exciting. <clears throat> uh, I presented on it at a conference uh, a few months ago, and then we'll be presenting on it again here uh, this fall because um, I think to my knowledge, it's gonna be the only one of its kind in the state among the tribal health organizations. Um, for over 10 years now, in this region, um, a lot of the clinics have been sending in monthly injury reports, which are very basic, just one line of data going across a, a, an ordinary sheet of paper that has really basic information about um, 
like the injury type, the cause of injury, and then like the location roughly of where the injury occurred, and then some really basic demographic data, no personal, personally identified information. So we can't tell who this injury was about. Um, and so over last winter, I compiled all of those monthly injury reports that we had that go back over 10 years. And um, so we can really start to see some patterns in injury types and causes and stuff. Um, but there were a lot of gaps in the data. Um, so what we're working on now is getting access to the electronic health records um, and then again, depersonalizing that information so we're not looking at names or anything like that. Um, but we really wanna start being able to look at injury types and causes and places and stuff, just some basic um, circumstances around injury so that we can get a better idea of what sort of interventions would be more effective in this region. Um, and then hopefully um, the other tribal health organizations around the state will um, learn from our mistakes and start doing the same sort of thing in their regions. That's, that's really interesting. Been in my uh, day jobs and academic at APU, I'm super interested in it. And also, we'll put this link on there. I have a little project that people can report their, their misses. Um, recreation voters can report their near misses and we keep track of those all all confidential uh, so we don't share people's names and stuff but the idea being and I think it's great that we can learn from other people's mistakes and near misses um, so that's fantastic now Arlo if I, oh, go ahead Joe if I could add to that Paul since you brought that up uh, if you're involved in a recreational boating accident where there's loss of vessel or damage more than $500 or injury requiring more than first aid, or especially a fatality, it's required that you report it to the Office of Boating Safety. It is also confidential and not a public record, but you are required to report incidents that meet those. And you can see more on our website. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, that's that's great, and I think uh, climbers, you know, have a, a long history of sharing their near misses and lessons learned, and it'd be great if uh, we can do that more in the boating community also. Now, let's uh, Arlo, you had a, a, another interesting question over the break. You were talking about that you own a kayak, right? And you had a question for Annie about the kayak, and I thought it'd be good for the listeners to hear your question and 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 Annie or Joe's response. Yeah, thanks, Paul. I've got a 17 foot kayak, plastic sea kayak with a rudder. And I bought separately on top of that, a sail system with like a 12 foot mast and two inflatable outriggers that go out either side and a four foot keel board. And now that snow machine season is pretty much over here. Uh, I'm looking forward to kayak sailing season. Um, I can carry 450 pounds of cargo in this thing. Uh, I can portage it myself. Uh, I can sail upwind, downwind, crosswind. It's just like a normal sailboat. And so, <clears throat> and that's what I use to go out um, trying to hunt during the open water times. Um, 
So I was wondering if I need to, since it's so long and, and, and powered, Annie, earlier you were talking about the switch, auto shutoff switch for boats under 26 feet. I was wondering if there's some requirements that I need for that sailboat, like um, radar reflector or um, green and red starboard port lights or um, hole identification stencil or anything like that. So I can um, start off and then at some point I'm going to toss it over to Joe. Joe's our boating law administrator, so he kind of knows these um, these more of these answers inside and out than I do, but um, all boats, including the, the term vessel encompasses everything from a stand-up paddleboard to, you know, these 40-foot ships that you see are bigger. Um, so um, all vessels are obligated to follow those state requirements. So again, you can kind of follow that. Um, and there are some exceptions um, that are listed out on that card for, um, um, boats over a certain size. So for example, for um, all boats over 16 feet are required to carry a US Coast Guard approved throwable device except for canoes and kayaks. Um, the registration comes down to um, the type of propulsion. So all uh, mechanically propelled boats in Alaska, um, all power boats are required to be registered. So anything that does not have mechanical propulsion does not need to be registered. Um, and so that could be, you know, you could have a, a skinoo and put a tiny little uh, trolling motor on the back of that. Now it needs to be registered. Or you could have this big, huge sailing device uh, that, well, not super huge, but um, good size sailing device. Um, if there's no pro pro mechanical propulsion, you don't have to register that. Um, as far as, um, uh, you know, the other requirements or whether, you know, now that you've turned your kayak into a sailboat, um, if it still meets that, that exemption, I'm going to uh, toss that one over to Joe. All right. I'm going to put on my uh, park ranger hat. If I were to stop you on the water, the checklist I would go through is that you got to have a life jacket for everybody in that vessel, as Andy described, vessel. So you'd have to have a life jacket. The best thing to do is to wear it. For the throwable, the exception is a kayak. Once you get over 16 feet, or actually it's 17. And with your boat, it, you, it's kind of a gray area, but it, you don't have to have it. But what you do have to have is a sound producing device. And you also have to have what's called visual distress signals. That could be that flare uh, for operating between sunset and sunrise. You don't have to carry it uh, during the day. And then the last one, you asked about lights. You don't have to have the red and green, but you do have to have a white light. And the way the law goes is you have to have an all around white light on hand in time to prevent a collision. So you don't necessarily have to have it on, but it needs to be readily accessible. And that's pretty much it. Great, thanks a lot. That uh, sounds like good stuff. And just to um, make it clear, I wear a dry suit and a, a paddling life jacket whenever I get in that thing. Yeah, that's uh, super important. It's important to, if you're in a kayak, I would say dress for the water, not for the air.
Um, thanks, thanks, guys. That was very, very super helpful. Uh, you know, boat and safety folks, you guys really like to have, um, you have a very serious subject on your hand, but you also like to have fun with it. Uh, Joe and Annie, uh, not this year in the year of pandemic, but we helped organize an event in Anchorage called the uh, Paddle Sport Fun Day. Uh, we're hoping to have it back in person in 2022. But um, we also have uh, Greg Nostein with us. Uh, Greg's also with ANTHC and the Commute Singers. And he's involved with a thing called the Float Coat Psalm. So welcome, Craig, and uh, tell us a bit about the psalm. Uh, thank you. It's uh, good to be here and be among so many um, like-minded people wanting to make sure that everybody's uh, well aware of how important it is to have a float coat. All I know is that I was working one day and uh, the Ingrid Stevens's predecessor came knocking on my door and said, uh, I was having coffee uh, with one of my colleagues from the state of Alaska, and we were talking about all the different ways in which we were getting the word out on the importance of wearing a personal voting device. And uh, one of those methodologies was we already knew that it was going out in print media, audio media, and visual media, but the only thing we didn't have was it being incorporated in the culture of uh, Alaska's people. And we was curious how challenging it would be to maybe choreograph or put together a, a, a traditional dance. I mean, we do it for almost everything else, um, successful hunts, um, personal visits to other lands or places like San Francisco or seeing the first airplane or the first TV for that matter. And I said, well, um, she did know I was in a dance group. And uh, I said, I could bring that up to our elders and see what they think. And uh, in fact, we're having dance practice tonight and uh, I'll ask them. And uh, so a week came and went and she came back to, you know, and approached me again the following week and said, how did it go? Uh, what did the elders say? And I said, oh no, I forgot to ask. <laughs> That's all I asked them that night. And, uh, they said, no, there's, uh, that's a perfectly good idea. Why don't you, why don't you young people get together uh, this week and uh, meet on it? And so we met on it on a Thursday because we practiced on a Monday. And uh, my mother was there. Uh, three other dance group members were there. And we had all the flyers on the importance of wearing float coats and all the um, information related to having those uh, float coat, uh, what do you call those stations in every village? And um, we started thinking, well, what would we do? How, what, we got to keep this really simple. We, we want to make it so that other dance groups can uh, replicate it and, um, and even kids could do it. So, and we, uh, well, what are the words are going to be? We didn't even know what the words were going to be because none of us really ever um, composed a, a traditional song, to be honest. And so um, my mother, uh, who was originally from Nome, I knew about from Wales, Alaska, said, well, my older sister knows uh, the language a lot better than I do. I haven't spoken in a long time. So we called my aunt Lillian Rose up in, uh, up in Nome. And we asked her, um, how do you say kids don't float in Inupiaq? And she does a little pause. And she said, uh, we never really had a word for don't float. So, uh, she said, kids don't swim or they sink or to that effect. And 
we had to phonetically write it down because not a lot of us speak our Inupiaq language as well as we used to. And so we didn't rightfully know how that was going to be turned into a melody. <laughs> you know, I didn't know exactly. Um, and then as it turns out, uh, the only floating device that we could and that we were aware of was the Uva Nirsapolk. Um, it's a silpolk that uh, I think uh, you, you keep on your kayak. <laughs> so when you go out hunting and you harpoon a, a, a sea mammal, um, you don't want it to sink and you have that float there tethered to a, to a leather, um, to a leather uh, rope. And uh, so we figured we could use that as um, uh, handing it to somebody you care about, um, including yourself. And then the motions were just another aspect of the whole thing that we were kind of thinking, how do you create or compose body language here? And how do you keep it simple? So we come up with uh, oaring in a boat um, were the motions for the beginning. And uh, if you don't have a life jacket on, uh, or unfortunately are, don't have one on, what's gonna, what's gonna happen? You're gonna sink in the water. So we figured um, we need to come up with some way of how that might look. And so we said, okay, we'll use bubbles. Um, how do you make bubbles? So we just use our hand motions going up <laughs> in that fashion. And um, boring, of course, was really simple. And then the other, the other motion we came up with was uh, treading water. Um, if you're not in a, if you're in a, if you're in the water and you're doing your best to stay afloat, you're, you're treading water basically. And so, um, and if you don't have a life jacket on and you get tired, you're going to sink. And so again, the bubbles uh, motion goes on, and then we just try to keep it short and wrapped it up by saying, well, um, you know, reach down, pick up a floating device or a life jacket, and hand it to someone you love or care about now that include be including yourself of course and then the last motion was just a just to say just to float um or yeah and then we had fun with that uh, we practiced it a few times uh we didn't rightfully know how the melody would come out but um it came out anyway it had its own life of its own in some regard and uh when we first started unveiling it, it was at the World Eskimo Olympics in Fairbanks that one summer. And we didn't have an inaugural unveiling of it. We just kind of did it anyway. And we were giving away float jackets uh, that were donated to us to give away at the, at the World Eskimo Olympics annual celebration. And, and um, we brought it to the Wells Dance Festival and introduced it. It received a relatively uh, warm welcome. and. Um, the unveiling happened in December, and uh, that was really nice. And then we kept on performing it wherever we went. And the second time we brought it to Wales, Alaska, and performed it, uh, we had some of the kids come out. And the kids came out, and a couple of other dance group members from other dance groups that were there at the dance festival in in Wales. And uh, you know, everybody kind of cheered, you know, welcoming them out on the on the floor uh, to perform the float coat song. And uh, after we were, everything was said and done, the gym erupted and we were shocked and amazed at how many people were really liking it. But I think the whole catch was the kids, they liked seeing the kids perform it. So oh, and the kids really enjoy it. They call it something different. They said, 
we want to do the bubbles song bubble songs <laughs> <laughs> and uh i don't know it's taken on a life of its own and they're just grateful that the office of boating safety um had the funding to uh document and film the uh you know the composition of it and unveiling it at the uh Alaska Native Heritage Center with the Coast Guard participating. And it went on, it went into a, uh, a YouTube video that you can find uh, just by typing in float coat dance. And my cousin Richard Atok uh, is the one who's uh, uh, translating the, the verse of the song, and uh, he does a great job of doing that. I really liked it. And uh, I was grateful that, um, Ingrid Stevens was was with us because uh, she was really instrumental in making that possible as well. I mean, this this whole partnership, this whole idea that we want everybody to be concerned and aware of how important it is to have a float coat in and around the water. Um, you know, too many of our um, young people and adults are experiencing a lot of tragedy and loss as a result. So. What better way than to just make it fun and uh, integrate it into a cultural message that uh, other dance groups can hopefully replicate. I do remember one interesting fun fact. Uh, Kelly Tooth, I was down in Florida at uh, a National Coast Guard convention and she, uh, she, um, uh, what's the, she, she, she FaceTimed me and she's, let me watch all these 200 and 300 people. All I saw was the back of their heads, and then the float coat song was on the was on the widescreen on the on the stage. And they were all dancing. Oh, <laughs> it was fun to watch. I have to admit that was a, a real pleasure to, and delight to see. Uh, thanks, uh, uh, thanks, Craig. Uh, I think what we'll do now, let's listen to the song, and we'll <laughs> come back. This is Paul Torlap. This is Outdoor Exploring Alaska Public Media, and we're talking about uh, boat and safety, and we're about to hear the um, the float coat song, and then we'll continue our discussion after it. So here you go. Was fantastic. That was the Kinamute singers of Anchorage uh, singing the float coat song. Uh, so, Greg, uh, anything else you want to tell us about the song? Uh, it's a catchy. It's a catchy tune for young children. Um, my nephew, um, my my niece, actually used to live here in town and come to practice a lot with uh, her her sons and. They since moved out of state down to Texas, and um, she was doing some house chores, and she heard this melody of singing somewhere in it. When she located where it was coming from, it was her son, and he was uh, he was 
singing the melody of the float coat song to himself. And uh, she found that really heartwarming. She wanted to share it with me. And they'd been living out of state for like um, six months or so. <laughs> Amazing how music really, it's just such a human thing. Uh, and I think it's pretty universal and, and people remember it. And it's great. It's a great thing that you all have done. And they don't even have any cold water down there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nope. But they still need to wear life jackets. Yep. Yeah. It's cold enough. Uh, so we have a few minutes left here and I have a question for the group. Uh, let's say I have a family member or a friend and they don't want to wear a life jacket or don't want to bring them along. Um, what advice do you have to folks or to me um, to convince them that it's a good idea? Uh, I'd have to answer this personally, not representing my employer at all. Uh, so just speaking for myself, <clears throat> um, if I was the boat operator and someone did not want to wear a life jacket before going on the trip, then I would say, okay, then you're not coming on the trip with us. <laughs> I can leave them <laughs> on the shore. But that's just my personal take. Yeah. Any Anybody else have thoughts about that? I would say that, you know, growing up, I was reluctant to wear a seatbelt, but that's changed now. How about someone else? Joe, we sort of lost it there for a minute. Yeah, so I just want to share, this is Ingrid. Yeah. So Teresa Markham, who's uh, the injury prevention specialist out in the Yukon Cuscoham Health Corporation, she did some interviews with elders at one point about drowning, because that's a huge problem, um, not just within... Uh, that, that area, but all across our state near waters. Uh, what the elders told her was that they have to wear their life jacket, especially if they're going on the ice and it's frozen or it's thinning ice, because if they go under the water and under the ice, our search and rescue wants to find the remains so they can return it to the family because it really does help with the grieving process. So that's, that's one way to, to have your elder tell you that message. Mm. And I think the Office of Boat and Safety runs some ads having the kids tell their parents, right? I haven't been in those situations where um, enough of those situations where anybody wouldn't be um, interested in wearing a float coat device or in a boat. I've been in a, I, I've been in a boat every time I've ever been in a boat, there was a floating device available. And we wore it on our way out and had it on the whole time. So it seems uh, challenging to to just to be in the company of anybody who would not want to wear one. Yeah, yeah. I think um, it, it's a it's a challenging conversation to have for sure. Um, I, I want to bring back we we're on Zoom as we are in the pandemic here, so we always have that challenge going on. Everybody's familiar with. So I think Joe McCullough or Annie are back with us, and I was wondering if you all had advice um, for folks, at sort of educating family and friends about wearing, you know, life jackets, float coats, um, and and boating safety, because that's always a challenging conversation. Well, it is, and. What I always tell people is just emphasizing the fact that folks weren't, we don't lose that many people wearing life jackets. Eight or nine out of 10 every year 
isn't wearing a life jacket. Yeah, that's great. And the other thing is about alcohol. I think that's another big part of this issue. Is that correct? Yes. And alcohol, you know, a lot of people are very familiar with the idea of a designated driver. And we emphasize you don't want to have a designated drowner either. And what that <laughs> means is definitely the operator of the boat shouldn't be drinking. But really, with the boat and the stability issues and other issues, nobody should be drinking in the boat. Save it for the dry land because we lose passengers all the time because they're under the influence of alcohol or some other impairing object, uh, which could yeah. be a lot of different things. Yeah. And I, 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 I bet if you were to prioritize, Joe, it'd definitely be. Um, especially when the boat's moving, I imagine. Yes, and especially small boats. Especially small boats, yeah. This has been Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Paul Tordak. Um, we've had a great crew with us today. And uh, we've had uh, Joe McCullough and Andy Grenier with the Office of Boating Safety. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for inviting us. And we'll have a lot of information from them up on the Outdoor Explorer website. Also, we have Ingrid Stevens with the ANTHC's uh, Injury Prevention Program and Ar Arlo uh, Davis with Injury Prevention uh, Specialist of Manila um, Association calling in from Kotzebue. So thank you two for joining us also. Thank you, Paul. And finally, uh, Greg Nostein, uh, also with ANTHC and the Commute Singers, has shared his wonderful, their wonderful song with us. Thanks a lot, Craig, for doing that. It was, it was fun to be here with everybody. Thanks for listening. And to my guests, Joe McCullough, Annie Grenier, Ingrid Stevens, Arlo Davis, and Greg Nostein for joining us. Also, thanks to our producer, Eric Bort. This is host Paul Twardock, and for all the hosts at Auto Explore, wear a life jacket, and we'll see you on the water. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.